to episode 18 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we catch up with Ryan Glitzky. I first learned about Ryan through his Instagram, where he goes by Moose1720. Ryan spends a lot of time in the field, and his passion for hunting whitetails is pretty obvious. A self-described rut hunter, Ryan has an impressive collection of whitetails from his home state of Pennsylvania and from his travels across the Midwest, including Ohio and Iowa. In today's podcast, Ryan and I discuss a range of topics, including scrape hunting, trail camera placement, morning, evening, and all-day sits. We also discuss Ryan's experiences hunting different types of terrain in Pennsylvania, including farm country and the big woods. And then we're going to dive into one of Ryan's bread-and-butter tactics, which is finding subtle funnels with boots-on-the-ground scouting. Really enjoyed my conversation with Ryan, and I definitely picked up a tip or two to put in the toolbox going into next year. Quick note before we get started, Ryan and I actually recorded this podcast back in October. Since then, Ryan took a great buck in his home state of Pennsylvania, so congratulations, Ryan. I actually traveled to Iowa the first week of November and got a nice buck there myself. And then shortly after that, I got COVID and got sick for, oh, almost 10 days. So between traveling and then getting sick, that's why this podcast is delayed and I'd also like to take a chance now to thank everyone that's been tuning in and listening to these podcasts and sending messages. Really appreciate it. So we'll go ahead and get into it. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Visit the Stealth Outdoors store to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. With another November come and gone, hunting seasons are winding down across much of the country. Get a jump start on your gear prep for the 2022 season and outfit your mobile hunting setup with silencing gear from Stealth Outdoors. There's not a better product on the market for eliminating unwanted noise from your mobile hunting setup. Designed from the ground up with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Again, visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to place your order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, on today's show, we're going to welcome Ryan Glitzky. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. And before we get started today, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to call and talk whitetail rut tactics with me today. So how are you doing, Ryan? Good, man. I really appreciate it. <clears throat> Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I've been following you on Instagram for a while. I've been enjoying your stories, and it's very clear to anyone that's following you on social media that you're a diehard whitetail hunter, you're out the on the weekends all the time, living and breathing it, and that's something I can relate to. Not so much on just strictly whitetails these days since I moved to Montana, but hunting in general. So it's uh, always refreshing when you find somebody with a kindred spirit. Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, I don't even know if you want to, excuse me, call it a passion. It's a, it's a, an addiction. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I, I have to try to keep under control sometimes. My wife will tend to remind me <laughs> when I'm going overboard, <laughs> especially this time of year, you know, when the seasons are getting ready to amp up here. It's definitely easy to get wound up. So Ryan, for my listeners who might not be familiar with you, give us a little background, start out with like where you live, how you got involved in hunting. And then I'd be interested what flipped the switch for you personally from turning from a deer hunter to a trophy deer hunter? I'm from Southwest Pennsylvania. I started hunting when I was 14, uh, kind of the traditional upbringing, bringing, you know, rifle hunting, stuff like that. Um, I started archery hunting when I was 16. I was pretty fortunate enough every year I've hunted, I've at least killed one whitetail. Um, so, you know, success, success came pretty fast and quick for me. Um, but when I started picking that bow up 16, 16, things started to change. I think I killed my first archery buck when I was 19. And then, uh, you kind of go through that stage as a hunter, you know, you want to get your first, this first, that, and then you start killing. And I kind of went through that for a lot of stages of, you know, I got pretty good at killing deer, um, those and bucks. And then I think it was like 2005, um, actually a gentleman I hunted with, um, he kept telling me, you got to hold out, you got to hold out, you got to hold out, you know, and. I think, boy, it was all about just filling your tag at the moment. You know what I mean? Yep. And things just started changing for me. And in 2005, I killed like my first buck I put on the wall. It was like, you know, 120 some inch, eight point. And I swear to God, I killed 160 inch. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, just, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was ecstatic. It was like, it could have been, I didn't even know how big it was. I just knew it was big at the time, you know? And, and that kind of lit my fire. And, you know, I still killed, you know, smaller bucks, stuff like that for a couple of years. And then, then over probably the last decade, it is just, it has just been balls of the wall, just killing, you know, I want to kill something 
for the wall. You know, you could say, you know what I mean? You know, I killed those for meat in the freezer, for the venison and all that. But man, when it comes to the buck, I'm pretty much looking for something to put on the wall now. That's just kind of my passion, my obsession now. Yeah, a few things there. So I've talked to a lot of guys on the podcast and outside the podcast. I'm a pretty active member on the Hunting Beast. And one of the consistent things, and I'm going to point this out for people that are maybe listening to podcasts to get to be more proficient hunters or they're trying to become, you know, people that are targeting more larger animals or mature bucks is consistent theme with all these guys is just start out killing deer, right? Kill some does, kill bucks. And, you know, you got to, I always say, the time to learn when to draw on a deer is not when the booner's walking in. Yeah, you have to be comfortable in the situation. You have to learn that. And that comes through years of trial and error. We all have misses and hits and stuff like that, but you got to get some kills under your belt to get that confidence there. Um, end of the day, I'm big on confidence kills, and uh, you get that through years of, of, of practicing this, you know. Sure. My other favorite saying is there's no replacement for experience. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So going back to kind of that transition, you said 2005, you shot your first big buck. And then was it like a personal challenge or what motivates you to, to target these older age class deer? Uh, now it's just a personal, you know, I, you know, I've, you know, this whole social media stuff, it's fun. I've really got to connect with a lot of fantastic people and some of the best white belt hunters in the country. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't do it for the likes or follows. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I do it for my own personal, my own personal goal. There is just something about, um, the two big passions I have for this is, you know, the number one thing, there is nothing like walking up to a good buck. <laughs> Once you put all that time and effort in, there's nothing like it. And the second thing, I'm big on my postseason scouting. Uh, the process in general, I love the process leading up to that point of, you know, walking up on that big buck. That, that's what it's all about for me. That, that Those two things there, that's what it's all about for me and why I do and what drives me. Yeah, that's something else that I've noticed consistently across all these guys that are consistent, successful killers is that almost all of them, I'd say maybe all of them, um, really enjoy the process of scouting and putting the whole piece of, all you know, all the pieces of puzzle together. That's my favorite. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the postseason scouting, like I've actually, like our season starts here on Saturday. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I can't wait to get the tree. Hope I, you know, bless the harvest a good buck this year, but I can't wait for the postseason because I got a couple of some good friends lined up in a couple other states. Like I'm fired up to do that. You know, yeah. it's, it's that chess match, man. I love it. I'd live for that. Now I'm going to ask you a question that I've been asking all my guests, and this is primarily for the benefit of the listeners. And it's a question that tends to make a lot of guests a little uncomfortable because uh, most of the guys that are hunting are super humble and, you know, not arrogant, but I want to ask again for the sake of listeners at this point how old are you and how many big mature bucks have you killed now uh i'm 44 um big mature bucks that's an interesting question you know like you said you try to stay humble um i think a lot of that dictates the region you come from also you know i guess you want to know my resume um i'm actually in my game room now i have what 15 white tails on a wall mount and i probably got a handful half dozen european mounts I probably on the wall, I got my smallest is 105 inch five year old killed in PA, and the biggest is 160 inch uh, killed in Iowa that I killed last year. And I got pretty much everything in between there out of those bucks, you know? Yeah, and I've seen pictures of the room, and that's why I was asking because I know you got a pile of good bucks. And like I said, that's for the benefit of the listeners that people aren't familiar with, like, why should I be listening to this guy, right? But if, <laughs> yeah, if, exactly. if you haven't seen the pictures, uh, check out Ryan's social media. He's got a lot of great bucks. And uh, like I said, obviously, from what I've seen, you're just a hardworking, humble guy. So it's kind of an awkward yeah. question to answer sometimes. But thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of your specific tactics, set the stage for us. Are you hunting generally a specific deer or are you hunting a certain caliber age class of deer rather than one, two or three specific deer? Um, I am hunting for opportunity at probably, I would say, depending on what region I'm in, um, in PA, um, I, I, you know, I can't really outreach my boundaries and what, you know, I love to kill 150, 16 deer every year. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Um, but in PA, basically in PA, what I look for on public land, this is probably going to change over the next year or two, but right now my base for PA is like a three and a half, 120 class buck, eight point or something like that. That's a pretty solid baseline buck for me. I could see that in the years here, I've trained just to the mountain big woods. There's a little better quality bucks that changing. But they, when I'm in the Midwest, the high Illinois, the high wherever I'm at, 
that's more my bar starts to rise a little more to more the four and a half, 130, 140 class. That's kind of what I'm looking at in those areas, you know. And then when I go, like you say, you say somewhere like Iowa, when I go to Iowa, if I draw my tag, I'm 150 plus. That's what I'm looking for there. Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind, right? Because the region should dictate. Yes. Uh, yes. I always say I want to shoot a top 10 or 15% buck for the area. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sounds like we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're a self-described rut hunter, and that's primarily what our conversation today is going to focus on. I'd like to start out with a real high-level question, and this is for you personally. During the rut, do you prefer mornings or evenings, and what's your preference and why? Well, I've probably killed close to equal amounts between the two, mornings and evening. So, you know, which one I, I kill more bucks either or. Um, I would prefer the mornings. I it just, I think it's just a personal thing, you know, watching that sunrise and everything wake up in the morning. There's just something about morning hunts, you know? And, uh, the nice thing is too, if you do kill in the morning, you got all damn day to take care of it. Sure. <laughs> it makes it a plus, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, but I've killed them equally both. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm an all day hunter, um, all the time, pretty much when it comes to rut, you know? Um, but like I said, if I had a choice, if I had a choice to kill one, it's going to be in the morning. I, I prefer the morning. It's just something uh, a little more special about those mornings. Yeah, I like the morning hunting too, especially during the rut. And I, so I, I hunt mostly evenings, almost exclusively up until about October 27th, 28th. And then that's when I really start hammering on the mornings. Yep. I so that's pretty much the same to me. I'm typically that first week archer here. You know, I'm hunting and you may see me in the, maybe the first day just to be up a tree in the morning. Um, but, Typically, I'm just evening hunting also um, up until about that last week, the 24th, 25th. Depending on the weather, that's when I'll start my morning hunts pretty much. Okay. And then you also do a lot of all-day sits during the rut. So I'd like to ask a few questions surrounding that. First would be discuss your observations during the rut for midday movement and any factors that you think might enhance or diminish midday movement. Because a lot of guys aren't sitting all day. And uh, I think some of the guys that are – uh, especially during certain times, are having pretty good luck. Yeah, how I how I uh, tackle my all day sits is this: um, I, I'm fortunate enough I get a lot of vacation time, so I'm basically off for a month. So usually, last week October, say around the 24th, 25th is when I start my vacation. And how I I'll start hunting mornings and of course evenings. But what I do is usually I'm prepared to sit all day. When it comes into October, I got a lunch with me. I'm prepared because. I've seen does come and heat that last week of October early. And when that, when them does pop early, phew, it, you see some, you see some great action. You see some big bucks. When it comes to the all day, the midday stuff, um, that's typically where I see some of the biggest bucks middle of the day. Um, personally, I kill most of my bucks morning and evening. I've had some success, you know, at midday that 10 to two period. I've had some success like right on the beginning part of that, the end part of that, that true, like 11, 12 o'clock. I've never aired one right then and there. I've come damn close on some big ones. Um, last year, I come real close killing a real big one and publicly in PA. But that's typically when I see some just giants middle of the day, just up and cruising. Um, that's To me personally, that's one of the best times of day to hunt that a lot of guys miss out during a rut. Um, I think a big mistake a lot of guys uh, do is don't you got to put that ass time in, especially that time of year, because it can happen at any time I've seen it. Like I said, I see a ton. Of, it could be dead in the morning until 10, 11 o'clock, and then all hell breaks loose. You know, from 11, 12, 1, 2 o'clock, it just, it's, it's crazy. You know, it's unreal what I see sometimes midday. Yeah, and one of the guests that I had on previously, and you might be familiar with uh, the PSU Deer Blog since you're from PA. Mm-hmm. Yep, so I had uh, Dwayne Diefenbach. He's the lead biologist or researcher that writes a lot of the Deer Blog entries. And one of the things that I found that was real interesting from their, their GPS collar study was, was during the rut, obviously bucks are moving almost all day. But the one slow time was like 4 to 5 a.m. And the, th- the theory there is that the bucks bed down. That's a little bit of time that they rest on a regular day. And then a lot of times, I think the reason you're seeing that 9, 10, 11, noon, 1 movement is because they're getting up from bed. And then they're, you know, they're obviously going doe bedding area to doe bedding area. Yeah. When I'm hunting the right, I guess you can say is I don't worry about what time it is. When it when that time of year comes rolling around, weather dependent, like you were saying, things that uh, factor into movement. Like last year, we had a horrible rut. It was seventy, eighty degrees some days. You know, for what nine, ten days straight here, 
and it shot it down. It was the worst rod I've ever hunted, you know, in 30 years or wherever I've been hunting. I've never seen it like that. Um, that will suppress it quicker than shit, in my opinion, the weather. You get those, you know, extremely high, above average temperature, it just shuts shit down. Um, for me, it, it was a struggle last year uh, when it was like that. Yeah, we just experienced that here in Montana with the elk ride. We had a lot of 80-degree days, and Ugh. so I'd be driving around at night, like night bugling, trying to locate elk, and yeah. boy, I tell you what, at night, they're doing a lot of stuff, but during the day, the, the daytime movement, which obviously is when you can hunt, it was very suppressed. So a guy that would be considering an all-day hunt, are there any specific dates in November that you'd suggest? For example, I'm asking you, if you could only sit three all-day sits a year, if I put that restriction on you, what days would you pick and why? Or what factors would you look at? Well, it depends on where I'm at. Now, if I was in Iowa, I've been there uh, three times in Iowa. If you give me three days, I'm going to take Halloween, November 1st, and November 2nd. I've just... Um, I've killed two or three, two out of three bucks I've killed there in that time frame, and I've seen some outstanding action. If I'm in PA, um, three days, I'm probably going to pick probably the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Um, I've done pretty good. I've killed a lot of bucks in around that time frame here. I've seen a lot of uh, all day movement. Um, those are three days I pick here in this area. Yeah, that's pretty consistent. What I've I've seen in Michigan too. My my favorite day personally is uh, November seventh. I've killed two of my biggest three bucks on november 7th so yeah kind of yeah, partial really to that one yeah oh yeah 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 yep. guys i want to take a quick break from the podcast to talk to you about backwoodsmobilegear.com backwoods mobile gear produces an array of products to completely customize your mobile hunting setup backwoods mobile gears product line includes climbing aiders like their multi-step aider and versa aider climb higher using the same amount of climbing sticks with climbing aiders at a fraction of the weight of an additional climbing stick Backwoods Mobile Gear also offers a variety of AM Steel rope solutions from daisy chains for climbing sticks to AM Steel gear hangers. Replace those bulky straps and hunt ruining metal cam buckles with buckleless and lightweight AM Steel products from Backwoods Mobile Gear. Check out Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com if you want your setup to be lighter, to take you higher, and to keep your gear tighter. Now back to the podcast. So I've listened to some of your other podcasts and and that you've done with other channels and one of the things that i thought was real interesting and and i could relate to was you said one of your keys to success is finding subtle funnels using boots on the ground and these are funnels that you can't see on aerials so describe some examples of those type of funnels what you mean by a subtle funnel and maybe share a story about how you found one of those and and maybe killed the buck there yeah, there's uh I think that's a big key in my success. Um, I think you see, you know, we all can pick out an inside corner. We can all pick out a saddle. And nine times out of ten, depending on the, the area, I can bet there's a tree standing there. And personally, I think them big bucks learn that. I'm not saying they're not going to go through those areas, but I think they learn that. And what tactic I use is in the postseason, I put a lot of miles in to find these spots. And a couple areas that pop in my head, I actually spot that I, I said I almost killed a buck last year in PA. Um, it's basically on top of a ridge. It's most, most like a big plateau on top of this ridge. It would have been it was a little bit of topography there, but there was an old dry creek bed that ran through, uh, ran through this area right off of a clear cut. And there was one low spot in that creek bed where they pinched everything down. Now that dry creek bed, you would never see that on a, never see that on aerial map or topo or anything, but there was enough, enough of it. Uh, it was deep enough cut in the timber, in, in the land there to where that one section, they funnel across and they would stay away from the other real steep areas of it, but they funnel there and it was a big primary scraper. And then just north of that, there was a couple other ditches that came up and pinched everything down. Like everything kind of just forced that area, almost like a hub of a wheel, and everything just pinched down to the middle of it. Um, there was a couple cuts there. There was a, there was a drainage there. Also, in, on the, been the southern end of that, there was a drainage. Like, everything kind of pinched down there. And none of that would have showed up on aerial map. And, and that's kind of stuff there that I'll find. One of my best spots in PA, actually, you almost got to zoom out, like, on Google Earth to really understand it. Um, there's a... Uh, big Ridge uh, that's on private property. It's real thick and nasty. It'd be on the uh, eastern side, okay? And then on the western side is a real uh, rugged, real nasty creek bottom. 
And this, this is basically, we call it the flat lays in between these two. Um, but what's right off this flat is a real steep uh, cliff, like a 50, 60 foot cliff that runs probably about 100, 150 yards. But on each side of that cliff, there's two draws. So basically everything just like a big X just crisscrosses right on that flat right there. There's a couple big primary scrapes. And you'll sit there and ride, and you're just all day cruising. But, like, if you don't, like, you walk by, there's literally a train road that runs by or a logging road. There's people walk by me, you know, when I'm in my stand, literally. Yeah. You know, small game hunters. Nobody, like, you can't see it physically until you zoom out in your head, you know, and, and, and visualize how that, that area all comes together there. You know what I mean? That's not like a small little funnel, like a ditch crossing or creek crossing. That's kind of on a bigger scale. You know, but you get the same kind of effect. You know what I mean? The same kind of activity through there. That's one of my favorite spots. I've actually killed probably three or four really good bucks in PA out of that, out of one tree. Um, it's just, it's just a dynamite location for all day travel. You know, like I said, there's situations where, yeah, in certain Midwest, I can get away with hunting a saddle, an inside corner, certain places. But when you get into the pressure states, um, I, I don't see the big bucks using those typical funnels as much. You know, they do, you see it, but I'd rather be, I, what I, a lot of times what I look for is I'm looking for multiple things coming together to give me multiple opportunities. You know what I mean? Um, multiple, like, you know, coming off a clear cut, an edge of transition, you know, there's a creek crossing along with something else. Maybe there's a saddle a hundred yards down the ridge, but a lot of things are coming together to make that spot good. So you're talking about like multiple features that themselves would be pretty good, but when you find all those, like a confluence in one area sure yes yeah that's a lot of times now it's like i said you don't look at the big picture of that sometimes sometimes it's not really on a micro level where you're like oh shit there's a creek crossing you know what i mean sometimes maybe that creek crossing ties into a saddle or something else or along a ridge or a deep cut on a ridge that all kind of ties in to make a spot really good there's multiple travel patterns coming together that's the stuff i'm looking for all the time so let's go back to there you talked about the flat um plateau with the crisscrossing so it sounds like you found that area during postseason scouting, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Many years ago. <laughs> okay. So let's say you find an area of interest like that. What's your approach going forward? Are you going to throw a sit at that? Are you going to throw a camera at it first? How are you going to evaluate whether your you know your suspicions during postseason scouting are correct or not? Uh, typically, what I do is I find you know I find these spots in the postseason. You know, it's kind of I don't know just from doing it so long. You know, you kind of get that woodsmanship skilled honed. Um, you know, the sixth sense, the spidey sense starts screaming. You know, you get in these areas and just something's telling me this is a spot. And typically what I do is when I find that spot, I try to break it down. Uh, you know, try to break it down looking at, you know, the thermals, the wind directions. You know, what's, what I see is going on here, why? You know, ask myself, why is this area look so good? And once I kind of break that down a little bit, that's usually a lot of times, like I said, I'm big, I'm big on scrapes, on community scrapes stuff. A lot of my good areas are going to have scrapes in them or I'm going to put a mock scrape. And like I said, that's where the cameras come into play then. And that's what I'll do is I'll start putting cameras on in the summertime and I'll either let them soak all the way through a season or I'll check them a couple of times. And if I'm getting quality bucks in that area, I will throw sits at that that year. That's kind of how I do it. Um, but I'm kind of trying to build up historic. Uh, kind of data over a year or two between the cameras and maybe some sits this to kind of you know hone that spot to where it turns into a killer spot that's kind of what i'm looking for it seems like a good time to transition into some of the questions i had about trail cameras because i know that you're running trail cameras pretty regularly and, yeah. and one of your focal areas for deploying those cameras is over scrapes so and you just touched on this a little bit but i'm gonna ask a question because it's got a few parts are you deploying your cameras mostly for inventory for the, or for in-season intel or for the following year, like you said, historical data going forward? And that's what I would call prospecting. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Okay. Um, I run about 30 cameras. Oh, wow. Yeah, I run about 30 cams and I need more. <laughs> <laughs> I cover a big area, so I need more. But anyway, um, typically what I do is like my summer cameras, that, that's going to be, I'm putting in a lot of these areas. 90% of my cameras are on big scrapes. Typically, they're on a big primary scrape, especially ones I plan on checking uh, throughout the summer, maybe once or twice into the fall. That's kind of kind of gauge. That's going to give me an idea of the quality of bucks in there. Now, I will have, then I'll have some cameras that are maybe on like a scrape line. Say that scrape line's running north to south on a ridge or something, I find. 
Um, a lot of times what I do with my post is scouting, I'll, I'll mark, say, seven or eight, nine scrapes in a row across that ridge. Then what I do is I come back in when I hang my cameras in the summer. I say, I'll put one on the southern end on one of the best scrapes, and I'll put one on the northern end on, on one of the scrapes I feel is getting hit the most. And then I'll gain that data. I'll let that camera soak through the season. Then when I pull that card, seeing those two cameras, I'll see what them bucks are doing running that scrape line. How, when, you know, and all that stuff. With wind condition thermals, you learn a ton doing that, you know, uh, running cameras like that. And when it comes to the in-season stuff, it, it's kind of all kind of plays in together, I guess. I'm still going to check cameras. If I'm near a camera, I'm not going to go out of my way so much with the season comes in because I'm just pretty much, I'm hunting, 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 you know what I mean, and bouncing around. But if I come across a camera, you know, maybe on Sunday, if we're not hunting here in PA, I'll go check three or four cameras and kind of get an idea what the action's going on. Then that's when I'll use that into my game plan for when I'm hunting in the now, you know. Sure. Something I want to touch on that you just mentioned is you said looking back at the wind, the weather. So are are you when you pull in these cards, are you cross cross referencing that to historical data? Do you have some sort of log that you're tracking certain spots, or how are you keeping track of all that information? Um, I I am not. A lot of times I'm not probably as good as I should be with it. You know what I mean? A lot of times I'm looking for date and I'll look at maybe particular weathering around that area, precipitation or something like that. You know, why did I have two or three shooters come in in this two day period? You know what I mean? Then I'll go back and I'll check, okay, that rain front just came through a cold front. And then I'll, I'll log that stuff for historical data. Um, because that historical data is huge. That is something I've learned probably in the last two years. Um, I'm good friends with the guys from Exodus Trail Camera, and I'm telling them guys know their shit when it comes to this stuff. And one big thing I learned from them guys is this historical data. And I started seeing it firsthand with them guys, and I started seeing it over the last two years where, you know, maybe not the exact date that buck hits it, um, but it'll be damn close. Or you just see bucks in general. Might not be the same bucks. So you, you know, you had a big buck in November 6th or 7th hitting a spot. And be damned the following year, you'll have another buck moving in that area same time. You know what I mean? That activity level seems to stay consistent year to year around it. As long as the weather condition, you know, you don't get some crazy 80 degree weather like last year. You see a consistent pattern every year around that same time frame in that same area I've noticed. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's really helped me become more consistent is you start keeping track of that information. And then like you said, over the years, I, I got a lot of favorite sayings, but uh, (laughs) trophy deer hunting, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yes, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, you start accumulating these spots, and that doesn't happen in a year or yeah. two years. You know, it happens over yes. five, six, seven years. Well, maybe you find one great spot a year, or maybe it's even every two years. Well, after ten years, you got five or six great spots, and then you're rotating through all these really high odds areas. So it sounds like you're taking the similar approach. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm big on finding the kill tree. Um, I I'm a big believer. Once you break down area, there's there's one or two spots, maybe three spots, and depending on the acreage, that you can go in and consistently kill a good buck out of. You know, like I said, I'm looking for opportunity. You know, maybe down the road someday I'll start hunting a certain buck. You know what I mean? Um, but right now I'm just looking for, you know, a quality deer to put on the wall, more or less. And uh, I'm a big believer there's two or three spots out there that you can consistently on a piece of property kill a big buck every year. I, I've done it. I, I do it now. I got a spot I go in and I can kill a three-year-old every year on public land in PA if I choose to, you know what I mean? Um, but I'm just certain areas, you're just not going to have the quality of bucks you want. That's why I've kind of expanded to the big woods and stuff. But that's where I'm trying to take the same principle to find those kill spots that I'm trying to find. Sure. Let's uh, let's circle back to trail cameras real quick. Yep. Of the year 30 cams, are any of those cell cameras? Yes, I have four cell cams I have. Okay, now... Uh, I've never owned or never used one, but I know a lot of people out there are, and they're interested. And obviously, you're paying attention to the stuff that you know, the data you're getting out of your cams, and like you said, talking about conversations with the guys from Exodus. So, are you employing any different tactics with your cell cams? Are you putting them in like harder to access areas? How are you utilizing those? Do you think that in ways that are benefiting you more? They go into new areas that I found from the previous year postseason scouting. Last year, perfect example, I bought my first cell cam last year. I was in a, a undisclosed location in Ohio and uh, did a little scouting. I actually found this spot in the summertime. It was just a, uh, really just a, there was a, a real deep cut to come up this ridge right off, probably maybe 7,500 yards off this saddle, right off a clear cut. And there was a logging road and there was just a big, huge primary scrape. 
I'm like, well, hell, you know what I mean? Looks like a pretty good spot for cell cam. I had some service. And I did not hunt down there last year. I didn't get time. So I drew my Iowa tag. It was in Iowa and I was in PA. So I didn't have an opportunity to go to Ohio. But what that camera did, it hunted for me. That's exactly what it did. That camera hung from, I think I put it down Labor Day weekend. And I pulled it this past summer. So it was in there forever, many months. But in the fall, uh, during the season, I had probably at least a dozen bucks from Pope and Young to 160 inches hit. That's great. Wow. Yeah. So I can tell you right now, by looking back at the data, that at least last week of October, I can tell you where I'm going to be in Ohio. You know <laughs> right, what I mean? Right. It, you know, and I don't even need another cell cam there. It, that's how I look at like I can take that cell cam. Now it's going to do do that same thing somewhere else. I have a couple of PAs and new spots. That's what they're there for. Now, being a PA, if I get a couple of big bucks showing up, well, of course I'm going to go and hunt it. But for out of state, they're they're worth their weight in gold. You can go to a new area, set that cell cam up, let it hunt for you. You know what I mean? If you can't get back to the area or if you're not really 100% sure, let that camera hunt. It's going to tell you the quality of deer in that area and the time frame to be there to kill them. That's what it's going to tell you. Yeah, and I think the the setup that you had it on specifically where, um, so I've hunted Southern Ohio f- a few years, and the top of those steep cuts really, really funnel deer and having a scrape there. Like, that's a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Joe Elsinger. He's, he's on the Hunting yeah. Beast. Um, he described it to me one time as, that's a doorway in the woods that every buck's going to walk through. Yes, exactly. That, that's, that's one way, that's a really good way to put it. Yep. Yep. So it's, I think, uh, obviously the cell cams have an advantage, but it's really important where you place them and to maximize your coverage. Right. And then that sounds like a perfect type of setup to place one. Yep. Well, I, like I said, I use them for just the gauge of the activity for a certain time of year and a quality of boxing area that lets me know, you know what, it's a new area. You know, I, you know, I, I trust my instincts. Now I've been going long enough. I trust myself. You know, it's going to be a good spot usually. Um, but I tell you what, you let that cell cam hang in there and it, it gives you a lot of information. That's how I said I've used them. Yeah. And, and there's only so many days in the season, right? So you could have spent three or four days there to find out maybe that was a bust as opposed to now this year going in, you've got, and, and you said it earlier, confidence kills, right? Now you got all the confidence in the world going in there. Yep, Exactly. One last break here to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including beast gear, climbing sticks with weight reduction holes, designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight climbing stick. Beast Gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2 pound package, including the fastening strap. And new for the 2021 season, HuntingBeastGear.com has released the game-changing Beast Gear hang-on tree stand. Designed from the ground up to be the ultimate hang-on solution with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform and comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a durable anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more information or to place your order, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com today. Now, back to the podcast. So, scrapes are a big part of your hunting. I've personally never had great luck directly hunting over scrapes, and it's possibly, probably because I'm using the wrong timing or the wrong tactics. So, what time frame during the rut have you had the best luck hunting over scrapes? Is it early on? So, I'm going to divide it up into three parts, and this is kind of... uh, arbitrary division here but let's say october 27th to november 5th then let's say november 6th to the 18th and then the 18th and later are you focusing on scrapes early middle late or all three and why you know of course everybody knows you didn't that last week of october october 20s into halloween i think that is your peak time to hunt scrapes that's probably my probably my favorite time that's when i get a lot of probably majority of my activity um, but you do read a lot. People say all oh, the scrapes dry up first week of November. So I, I don't see that. Um, I still have a lot of activity first week and, uh, into the teens of November. 
the last year, actually, the, like I said, the buck I almost killed in, in the big was in PA. It was November 12th. Um, he was actually coming into a big primary scrape um, that I was hunting. He, unfortunately, he ended up winning me. But I've seen activity from October, beginning of October, all the way through November. Um, our season here is typically out by, uh, they extended last year, by the 17, 18, 19. Now, it's pretty much out. So I don't really have much experience past that. Other than trail cam data, now trail cam data in Ohio, I've seen great activity in December on my cameras. I've seen it in January. I've seen it in February. I'm big if it's the right scrape in the right location, you're going to have activity on it all year round. It does not matter what time of year it is, you're going to have activity in bucks hitting it. So give me some factors for you that would differentiate an average scrape from a great scrape. Uh, it's going to be location-based. Um, when I said about the areas I'm looking for, when I'm out scouting boots on the ground, you know, it's pretty much similar to, you know, these overlooked funnels or top site or uh, situations. What I'm looking for is multiple things coming together to make that like a big primary scrape. It's going to be, there's probably going to be cover nearby. Of course, there's going to be a transitioner edge. There is going to be, you know, a certain funnel or multiple funnels, multiple things coming together terrain wise. That's going to kind of, pinch everything down to that certain location. Um, it could be thermal-based, wind-based, of course. There's multiple situations. Like I said, some of this, it's hard to, some of it's hard to explain because it comes from experience. You know what I mean? You do it for so long, you see it, and it just pops. You know, you kind of start putting everything together. But I would say my best grades have multiple things coming together to make that area good. Where, like you said, there's, I think like you just said about that front door, you know, all the bucks before they go to the end of that room. You know what I mean? Yep. It's that similar thing. It's like that. It's just, it's, it's that local hangout, the local bar. It's a, it, it's that area there. Everything that does, I get just, like the thing is port too. People make sure like a big thing to me is I love seeing does. I mean, I want to see does hitting that scrape the whole time too. Cause guess what? You know, all it's time to run. You know where they're going to be. You know what I mean? You want to see that social aspect. You want to see bucks and does and fawns. I want to see all that. That's what makes a scrape good. That's what makes a scrape killer for a camera setup and for a kill spot. So talk to me about that a little bit, specifically the doe activity. When you're either on camera hunting, um, when you've had big bucks come in, what's the doe activity been like around those scrapes? Um, it, it's pretty, you know, they, uh, I see a lot of consistent things in the box. They come in, they work the licking branch, you know what I mean? The piston and scrape, stuff like that. Um, like right now is the, these cooler temperatures. I've noticed with my cell cams, you know, every morning, you know, I cut those all day being on these damn scrapes all day as it's kind of cool as seeing a cooler weather and transition of the whitetails. Um, here going in the fall, I've been picking up a lot of does activity on, but uh, as the rut closes in, you know, I, I still see it. It just, uh, it's a kind of a social community thing you see, you know, um, they come in, they, you know, kind of like who was here, you know what I mean? Kind of deal, I guess you could say, you know, I see a lot of dough activity on my scrapes on the good ones. I see a lot of it. So I, I purposely set you up there, Ryan. So I had John Eberhardt on the podcast a while back and obviously he's had a lot of success hunting scrapes as well. So I like to, I like to get the opinions from different people that have success with similar tactics and, John's opinion is that during the rut, uh, scrapes are at hubs of doe activity. So it was interesting to me that you said you've got a lot of doe activity on your best scrapes. So that, that jives with what John's saying. And uh, anytime, so here's how I look at hunting. I'm a very like odds-based, uh, numbers-type oriented person. Mm-hmm. So whenever I see multiple people having consistent success with the tactic and the same types of explanations – that's something I put in the top of the memory bank. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, sir. And exactly me. Yeah. So that was interesting. And it's, uh, like I said, it's always exciting to me when I hear people that are having the same kind of success, using the same kind of tactics, drawing the same mm-hmm. kind of conclusions. So good to know. Yes. Good to know. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. So moving on, I know you primarily hunt two types of areas and then you're hunting big woods like mountainous areas and you're also hunting river bottoms and, and floodplains. And I don't know what, what type of terrain do you hunt in Iowa? Um, I was just your basically your farm country, a little bit of rolling hills type deal. Yeah. I hunt, uh, actually Van Buren County. Um, it's would be Southeast Iowa, arguably 
one of the best counties in the world, not Whitetail. Sure. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, that's my gift to myself for doing all the public land BS. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's focus on uh, the, the, the tougher public lands, PA and Ohio, because I think that's, yep. you know, more people can relate to hunting high pressured ground. I'd like you to compare and contrast your tactics in those two terrains. And let's start out first by what are you doing similar, if anything, uh, from the mountains to the river bottoms? Similar, boy, I mean, they are two different things. If I would say similar, probably just going to be my, probably my basic tactic overall of rut hunting, just planting my ass down somewhere where I feel pretty damn confident hunting. You know, dark to dark, a couple of days in a row, however I feel, you know, I feel pretty confident that spot. I'll hunt a couple of days in a row. Um, I think maybe just the tactic base, you know, I'm going to put my time in either place. But the two are just extremely different when it comes to a lot of things. Okay. Well, that's my follow-up question is explain how they're different and what are you doing differently in the mountains that you wouldn't be doing in the river bottoms or vice versa? Um, I would say now the mountainous, the big woods, this will actually be my second year. I've transitioned out of the flood control hill country, farm country pipe based stuff there. It's a little bit of a mix of everything. Um, the reason being, there's a high deer population in that, like kind of the farm country, the flood bombs. It's not a problem to get under sea deer. You know what I mean? The big thing is the quality, though. There's going to be lower deer numbers in your mountainous terrain in the big woods. Way different. But the quality of bucks are better. That's the big reason I moved there. You know, it might be a little harder hunting, but I have a better chance for a quality buck. Right. And I think, like, when it comes to, like, just say, setting up and scouting and all that, it's easy for me to find a good spot in the flood control, the hill country, the farm country. It, to me, that comes easy. It's easy to set up in, you know, your traditional area sometimes and stuff like that and see deer and get on deer. Um, the big woods. Traditional areas, you're talking like stuff you talked about earlier, inside corner saddles. Yeah, you can get on deer. You're going to see deer. You know, you may have to still hunt. Like you said, I'm still going to look for those overlooked areas that to get on the better quality bucks. But it's not hard as hard to get on deer there. I can be consistent on even good bucks there, three, four-year-old deer there. You, you know what I mean? Compared to the mountains. Now, the mountains, is, what's crazy is I can scout, say I go out in my winter post and scout, I might put seven, eight, nine miles on plus in a day. And you're just walking for nothing. You know what I mean? I mean, I'll just walk and it's like, and just nothing. This is just no, no. And then I swear it happens every time about mile nine or 10 and I'm done for the day. You know, the, the heavens open. I'm like, oh, here it is. You know what I mean? It just seems like those good spots are just so far between, you know, you're just putting on the miles to find a good spot every time. You know, you know, it's a couple of scouting trips to you find that spot or a good camera location or something like that. Um, it seems like I got to put a lot more time in to find those good areas in the mountains. You know, that's what I've really picked up on. I think that's something that doesn't get discussed often enough is a lot of times your boots on the ground scouting is, it turns out to be ruling areas out that are going to be unproductive. Yes. Yes, you're looking for the, I guess you would say, you're looking for that 10%, if that, maybe 5%, that's worth hunting. Especially in the big woods and mountains. You can pretty much cross 90% of that off plus. Um, it, it's not saying you can't kill something. You know, it can happen anytime, anywhere. But if you want your odds to be high, you've got to find that, that 5 10% of that area with that big buck's going to feel comfortable in. That's the key. You know, typically that's going to be around something you're going to have to have cover. You know, that's a big key is your cover. And then once you find your cover, you're coming off of that and trying to, you know, put the, you know, put the piece of the puzzle together to find that spot. Yeah. So your, your good areas that you're talking about when you finally do find one in the big woods, have you noticed any common features among those? What are you looking for? What tips you off uh, apart from a scrape that that's going to be a good area? Uh, usually cover. Um, usually cover is a big thing. I'm usually not far off as some type of maybe like a clear cut or something. Okay. Uh, some type of edge. Typically, um, it could be mountain wool thicket. Um, it could be, like I said, a clear cut. You know, a lot of it is based around cover. Steep topography also. And they run it down to like a river bog or something like that. Anything that's hard to get into, um, that's where the big bucks are going to be. You know, they're going to get away from that pressure. And a lot of times that, you know, in the round of Mary's coming off that is that transition where a lot of times you'll pick up your rub, your scrapes and stuff like that. And uh, you can start putting some pieces of the puzzle together there. 
that's kind of what I'm looking for all the time is once I get in these areas, you start getting that vibe. Then I start breaking that area down, trying to find the area I want to be in. And, um, you know, usually, like I said, scrapes are a big part of my tactic. And when I get in these areas, I'm really looking hard for them scrapes for the right ones. Where I can start hanging cameras and marking them locations down for the summer. So in the big woods, are you finding those uh, low on benches, up high on plateaus, all over the place? Any consistency there? Uh, it, a little bit of everywhere. Um, you'll find them off the ridges. You'll find a big scrape line. You run across a ridge. Um, you'll find a big primary scrape, maybe in the bottom of a creek bottom where a big thermal hub comes together where all the thermals are dropping. Yeah, I find them a little bit of everywhere. You know, like I said, it could be a couple of terrain features coming together where, boom, it's right there sitting. Um, it, it's a little bit of everywhere you'll find them. Okay. Yeah, I think it gets back to the point you said, too, what a lot of those things probably have in common is hubs of deer activity, you know, not necessarily thermal hub or whatever, but something where a lot of deer are going to be passing through or, or yeah. a lot of deer relative to that area, I should say. Yes, yes. Okay, so we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to get back to it because I think it's a super important topic. Um, historical data for either certain bucks or specific areas, and it sounds like you're doing that. Are you... And you said, you know, maybe you're not logging that as good as you should be always. And I'm guilty of that too. I think everybody <laughs> is to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. But are you looking at, let's say, going into this season, do you have certain areas that you're going to target on certain dates? Like you already mentioned Ohio, right? Yes. Ohio is definitely one of them. I will be down there probably, I'm thinking October 27th, about November 2nd and 3rd. That is my plan to do there. And from my camera data from last year, you know, it's hunting. There's no guarantees. Oh, sure. I'm very confident that I'm going to get my eyes on something good. It's a very low deer density area, but I feel that I'm going to get my eyes on a good buck. Um, the kiln's another story, um, but I feel pretty confident that I'm in the game. That's with that. And then when it comes to other areas for historical data, actually, a buck that I thought was dead um, just showed up on camera for me. And uh, he, unfortunately, he was pretty active at the same time going to Ohio. Um, but I am going to put a game plan together for him in the rut and see if I get on him. Um, he, I, I'm going to go off historic data to try to get an error on him also this year. Nice. So, no, that's interesting because I, I keep emphasizing this in a bunch of podcasts because I think that's one of the, like I said, one of the things that was kind of a game changer for me personally is realizing that certain areas are only hot certain times. Like I had a really good early season spot in Michigan and then, I had a spot that was only good for like five days around Halloween and it took a long time and a lot of cameras and a lot of wasted sits, you know, to figure that out. Yep. But, but once you do, that's uh that's really important. So that's why I keep hammering yes. on the, the timing thing. Yeah. The timing is really important. Especially in the, like you hear a lot of different things about the rut, you know, and I, one thing I've noticed, like guys like, well, that buck's here and going tomorrow. I don't see that. I've seen certain areas. I get a buck move in. Um, he'll be there for a little bit. You know, I'll see him for five, six days possibly depending on the dough um many a times i've seen a buck move in november 2nd 3rd or something whatever date is and i'll get an opportunity in five days later in the same area you, you know what i mean um so you gotta remember all that kind of stuff like that yeah that's one of the things uh i talked about too on a, a recent podcast i was on and something that I, I don't think everybody pays attention to but more people should pay attention to and again i'm kind of a nerd so the uh the deer biology aspect, right? Learning about the deer and like how long is an estrus cycle? How long is that deer likely to be there? You know, not that every deer is patternable, but what is in general, what are, what are bucks doing that time of year? They're going to a bedding area to a bedding area until they find an estrus doe, then they're locking down with it. So it's, uh, yeah. you know, those things are real important to understand. Yes, definitely. Well, let's talk about the evolution, if there is any, of your, your strategy as the rut progresses. So, again, let's back up to October 25th, 27th. Starting out the rut, go through maybe, you know, every three days or every five days. Are you moving to different types of areas? Are you hunting scrapes the whole time? Uh, if things aren't panning out, are you adjusting? What's your strategy look like, so let's say, from October 28th to November 28th? What's interesting is mobile hunting is a big thing now. That's a big term. And a lot of that's associated with bed hunting. You get a lot of that around that. And then when you say you're a rut hunter, that's not real sexy. <laughs> <laughs> everybody everybody thinks, you know, he's sitting in the same tree for 20 days straight. No, not, that's further from the truth. I'm extremely mobile. 
Um, how I play this game is once it starts getting good in the twenties, I start. I'm moving. I, you know, I hunt typically. I have a saddle. I have a bone with custom gear set. Or I have maybe a couple presets up in areas historically I have good you know information from. Um, I start bouncing. I'll start moving. You know, I'm checking some cameras here and there, seeing the activity. Once I get an area that that rut activity started to amp up, maybe those getting ready to pop. I'm starting to see some mature bucks. That's the area now. I'm going to put my time in now. It may be one tree for three, four, five days straight, or it may be two or three days, you know, or two or three trees, you know, a day here, two days here. I come back here for a day. I'm over here for three days, you know, in this general area, you know, to hunt down maybe a couple bucks I have on camera. That's typically how I do it. Um, I have no problem sitting in the same tree for six days straight, dark to dark, if I feel confident, you, you know what I mean? But I have no problem bouncing tree to tree every day also, if that's what needs to be. I'm gauging the activity. That's what dictates how long and where I'm going to stay. No, and exactly what you said, I think, is is my strategy too, gauging the activity. So if you know there's a good buck in the area and you're seeing the same doe group every day and, and your access is clean and you haven't disturbed them, then I don't think there's necessarily a reason to abandon that stand after one day either or even two, no. or, two or three. No. But if no. you start spooking those does off, well, then you might as well pack up your bags and go to the next one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you, I think a lot of problem guys have is the access. Your entry and exit is extremely important. Um, when I'm breaking down those spots, like I said, you're going to start breaking down to micro level with your wind, wind direction, your thermals. you got to break down the entry and exit route. And it may be a bitch. It may take you a mile, mile and a half out of the way. Well, if that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do to keep the spot clean. You know what I mean? Um, I've killed many a box after multiple sits. Everybody's about that first sit. And I think the first sit is your best sit. Don't get me wrong. But I've killed a lot of bucks in my wall on the third or fourth sit. You know, but that was called the clean access. Yeah, and I've I've been all over the map on that. So I started hunting with like the very, very, very basic Michigan hunt over bait pile tactics. And then uh, I got on the hunting beast where I was sitting a different tree every evening and morning. And I've kind of come back to a point where now like you said, clean access, I think uh, goes back to knowing the deer biology, right? Early season, bucks are concentrated in a small core area. And one or two sits is probably usually all you get because then they're on to you. They smelled you, they saw you, whatever. But during the rut, when they're covering 2,500 to 5,000 acres on average, you know, over the course of November, well, yeah, that buck might not come through every day. He might only be there every third day. So I think it I've tried to adjust my tactics the more I've learned about deer and, and that's really helped too. Yeah, I think I actually think a big mistake guys make. I hear some guys that don't like hunting a rut. And a lot of times it's the guys that are really, really mobile. You know, they're constantly moving every day. Um, in certain situations, certain areas, you can get away with some of that stuff here in Iowa and Illinois on some lower pressured areas and with higher numbers of big bucks. You know what I mean? Yep. You're going to luck into one or not say luck because it's still a lot of skill involved, but you know what I mean? It's a numbers game. Yep. You know, now when you're in areas of high pressure where it's not a numbers game now, you're, you're kind of chasing that needle on a stack of needles. You know what I mean? I think you're better off sometimes to be, be aggressive, but be patient also with maybe give that spot another day or two. You know what I mean? Um, maybe you didn't see a whole lot today, but you know what? Cause I burned myself last year. Actually, it was, it was towards the end of the season and I was hunting the mountains, and the mountains is a mental game up there. You don't see a lot of deer. And I actually had a big snowstorm come in. I sat in all day. Didn't see one damn deer, but I told myself, I'm sitting in this spot for three, four days just because it, everything came together here. Something's going to cruise through here eventually. Well, a snowstorm came in, and whatever reason, I second-guessed myself, and I moved. Well, I checked that camera that I had in that spot a couple of days later, and sure shit, next day I sat there, it was like 8.30 in the morning, one of my target bucks came through. Oh, man. You know what I mean? Just, it, you know what I mean? So that's what was a lesson learned. Like, Stick to what I know and what I'm confident with. You know, start bouncing around. Sometimes start chasing your tail a little bit in the rut. That's what ends up burning some guys, I think. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, I can relate personal experience in low deer density areas like you're talking about that you don't always see the sign that you'd like to see in a higher deer density area. So it can be real hard to tell, like, is he really in here or is he not? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a mental game. Yeah, especially like you said, there's... There's nothing worse than sitting in all day sit and only seeing a couple deer or no bucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long day. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then you're thinking, geez, if I would have been in spot B or C yeah, or D, yeah. I, I would have yep. saw all these other bucks. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You started out thinking yourself exactly yeah. what happened. Yeah. 
Well, let's shift gears. Uh, you've got a wife and a kid or kids. How many, how many kids you got? I am actually, I was divorced about five years ago. So I was married with two kids, got divorced. I got remarried and had another little one. So I decided to have another kid when I was 41. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. He's a little holy terror. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps me young. I'll tell you that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So having a wife and kids, I think that's uh, something I'm, you know, most blue collar guys or uh, yeah. typical hunters, public land guys can relate to. And everyone has a hard time making time with all the other obligations in life, right? We got to work, got to pay bills. Yeah. And yep. you found a way to be whitetail oriented, what appears to be pretty much throughout the year. So how do you balance your family time and your passion for hunting? And what, more importantly, what tips would you give guys looking to make the most efficient use of their time? Uh, you know, my life structured, um, maybe a little different for some people, I guess. Um, my wife, we're pretty, we're pretty good and open about things. Um, I guess you say my passion, my addiction is white tails. My hobby is lifting. I lifted weights for probably over 20 years. It's just been something I've always done to keep physically in shape. Um, luckily, my wife is big into it. So basically, my week structure is, you know, wife, we go to the gym, we switch off with the kid every day, and then come weekends, what's nice is she goes to the gym on the weekends, and uh, I don't go to the gym on the weekends. I go in the woods, and we have somebody watch them. So it, like, works out really good. So pretty much every Saturday, um, unless there's some family stuff, I'm pretty much in the woods for four, six, eight hours, depending on the time of year. Um, sometimes Sundays I'll get out there also, depending on what's going on. But it just, I guess it's how I structured my life around whitetails. You know, I mean, God and my kids come first, and my family, of course, you know what I mean? But then there's whitetails, you know. And uh, But I've just been fortunate enough that me and my wife work really good together uh, with she does her thing and I get to do my thing. So it works out pretty good. I know not every couple's got that, but I'm pretty lucky to have the same kind of relationship where my girlfriend's real understanding. And I think ha having the right partner, if you do have that obsession with hunting, is is very critical to the long-term success of the relationship. Yeah, because it can go the opposite way. Trust me, I'll be honest with you. Straight up, tell guys, I'm divorced because of white tails. Yeah, <laughs> be honest. With you. you know, my first marriage, I kind of put myself first to us. I learned a hard lesson. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so this time, I learned that you know she lets me know when things are getting a lot of hand. I mean, she knows it's hunt season. Um, you know, I take a like I said, I take a whole month off archery. So I'm pretty fortunate. You know what I mean? She's really cool with that stuff like that. So we have a really good system here in place. And it, it, you know, like I said, I can she she backs me 100 percent with my passion. I back her. Yeah, and uh, just from what I've seen of of your Instagram, all the work you're putting in whitetails, uh, the work you sounds like you're putting in the gym. I'm sure in the off season you're putting extra work into the relationship too, right? Like that's important. Oh yeah, yep, yep, definitely, yep. She she said let's go do this. Okay, right. <laughs> I don't order. She wants to do that. I said I don't care. Go ahead. I'll watch him for a weekend. You go to Florida. You know? <laughs> I'm like, yep, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. good with that. And I'll play. I'll play Mr. Mum for the weekend. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> hey, you know, I want to. I want to back up. I, I had one more question, kind of related to this, but I skipped one here on accident. So okay. So something that doesn't get talked about a lot either, I think, when it comes to podcast is actually shooting the deer, uh, your thought process, how you practice with your bow, what has helped you over time, right? Because I don't know, um, I think everybody at least initially suffers from some degree of buck fever, or anxiety, oh, or excitement. Yeah. So yep. what have you learned over the years and what's your shot process like now and what helps you stay in the, in the zone and, you know, get the arrow where it's got to go in the deer? This comes back to what at the beginning we said you got to kill those small bucks. I don't care. Just I don't care about shooting groundhogs. Get that experience of a little bit of adrenaline, you know, under you. Get a little bit of that fever. You, you know what I mean? Yep. Get in the moment. You, you need that. You know, and that comes from killing. Um, that's a big thing. You got to get some. You know, get a few kills under your belt. Um, but the process of me, I'm not a big technical archery guy my bow is 16 years old so that tells you sure. <laughs> that old girl's been going but she's killed a lot and i'm very confident with it it's simple and that's fine by me when it, when a big buck's coming in i'm pretty confident he's gonna die i mean we all make mistakes you know what i mean i still make mistakes this day but first to me once i see that target animal you know you're the binos are on i see my, my eyes once I know it's a shooter, I, I go in a different gear. I don't really get super worked up. Um, you know, we all get that kind of tunnel vision or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't get super worked up till after the shot. Um, basically, once I know the target, I don't know if it's an eight point, ten point. I have no clue. I don't. You know what I mean? Once I know it's a target animal. Um, and basically, what I tell myself when I come in, I draw my bow. 
I have a, a saying, I guess you could, in my head, I tell myself, wait a second, pick a spot. I always tell myself, I said, wait a second, pick a spot. It just gives me that fraction of a second to settle that pin in. You know what I mean? I tell myself, wait, pick a spot. I always tell myself that because you know how it is, you get worked up. As soon as that pin hits that hair and it's typically high, yeah, and that's the worst place you can hit a white tail. Yeah. Hit them high, yeah. And that's typically what I've learned is just take something in your head, just that millisecond to get that pin settled in, and then go ahead and you know follow through. Um, then that's typically me. That's when I get worked up. <laughs> so sure. it's funny that three of the things or two of the things for sure you said. So obviously, uh, as an archer, I've made mistakes in the past too, and one of my biggest mistakes. And it's cost me two of the three or maybe four deer that I've lost over my archery yeah. career is follow through. So mm-hmm. my process now, I say three things. As soon as I see something I want to shoot, I remind myself to breathe because, yeah. you know, it's like easy to let your heart rate get out of control. So I try to focus on my breathing. The second thing I always say is aim. You talked about that. Take a second. You almost always have more time than you think. Almost yeah, always. you do. In the yep. moment, you know, the time goes by so fast. And the last thing I, I always say is follow through. Try to hold that pin all the way through yep. to the deer's running off. Because exactly peeking around the bow has cost me two bucks for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's happened to all of us. Yeah. And, and, and as embarrassing as it is, uh, <laughs> two of the three deer that have lost her, like I said, I can't remember if it's three or four, but they've been on shots inside of 15 yards, you know, and it's because, oh, yeah. of, because it's like, Oh, it's a slam dunk. Like I said, yep. pin, pin on hide or jerking the bow looking at like, mm-hmm. yeah. So those things are real critical as, as you progress, I think is to have and whatever it is, right. Whatever works for you, have some sort of system or routine you go through. And when that deer's coming in, so you keep your, keep your mind, right. Yep. Make it a habit. And then when you're out there shooting your bow, that's like, you know, I cold shot pretty much every night. I only shoot three errors a night. That's all I ever do usually. Okay. Um, because I'm sitting for an hour to 10 hours until I get an opportunity, you know, in a day. And pretty much how I do it in the summer is I go out and shoot three errors. That's all I shoot. That's all I've always done. That's, that's just my how that works for me. I'm stiff. I'm not loosened up, but that's how I practice. That's how i always done it, and it works for me. Yep. Something to be said for that, too. Practice how you hunt. Yep. So we, uh, we went back to that, but we were, we were talking about family life and, and balance. And the other thing that I've noticed is you seem to be a real positive, motivated guy. So let's talk about maintaining a positive attitude when things aren't going your way. Cause that certainly happens in the whitetail oh, woods. So that's every year. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's talk about maybe, uh, you know, 15 days into your month off and, and things haven't went your exact way. How are you finding the motivation to get up and, uh, you know, when the alarm goes off at three in the morning to, to get out there and hammer on it again? You know, mentally wise, it's very draining. All of this, it will be as the season progresses. Physical wise, it beats your ass. Um, I do believe being in physically some decent shape helps with the mental side of it. You know what I mean? Um, you'll, you'll, it makes it a little easier getting up in the morning. It makes it a little easier getting the stand to and from um i think that's the really important part watching your diet all that all plays into the mental part of it um but when you're grinding uh trust me i said on our podcast um there's some mornings i'm driving in me and jesus are having some talks because it's <laughs> like lord can can this be the day please <laughs> you know what i mean it is it's tough and, and i think i prepare myself i've been preparing myself for weeks now leading up to our season telling myself I know what it feels like. I know what it's going to be. I know the grind, but this is my, this is my love. This is my passion. It's going to suck majority of the time, but when that opportunity comes, I want to be prepared mentally wise for it. And then I know that feeling once it all comes together, that rush, that's, that's the high that we can only get. When we walk up to them. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That's what drives me. That, that high, I cannot get anywhere else. It, you know, I cannot get that walking up on a big buck. That adrenaline rush, like, you can hear me three miles away. I get so fired <laughs> up when I kill one. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, it all finally, the you know, it's the weight's off your shoulders, you know? Because, like I said, I don't give a shit anybody else. Like, if I eat my tag this year, that's my problem. That's my business. That was my choice. Because I'll get opportunities to bucks. Just the buck I want, am I going to get that opportunity, you know? I do this for myself. But that high, that that that's just, I mean, that rush of walking up on a big buck. It is so addicting. That is what drives me all year to do. Yeah, and I think there's something just 
humans in general about setting really challenging goals and achieving them like you get the kind of satisfaction yeah. that you can't get from a lot of other activities you know you don't you don't get that watching netflix or, or doing whatever else no no so, no yeah well hey uh ryan we're coming up on an hour here really appreciate you coming on the show today want to give you a chance to turn it over to you if there's anything else that you'd like to add or experiences that you've had over, like you said, your last decade of being really hardcore into archery and, and whitetail hunting that you think would be uh, good for the listeners to know? Ah, uh, You know what? Season's coming. Um, get ready to grind. If this is your passion, you know, put everything into it. Put 110% into it. You know, before we know it, you know, there's going to be six, seven, eight inches of snow out there and it's going to be over and we got to start all over again. So uh, over the next, you know, two months, three months, put everything into it. You know, this, it's a short time. We're only here a short time. You know, it's, it's, this means everything. Just do it, you know, put your, put everything into it, you know? Yeah. Only so many opening days, only so many deer seasons. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm a little bit younger than you 38, but man, every year it's like, you can see the sands going through the hourglass. Yeah. I tell them, once you get in your forties, you're like, well, shit. <laughs> right. Right. Well, <laughs> just around the corner for me. So I hear you. Now. Yeah. Yep. So Ryan, uh, we talked about your social media a little bit. If you want to share that, where can people follow along and, uh, check your adventure adventures out? Uh, you can get a hold of me on Insta. Um, I'm under moose 1720. Um, I pretty well, uh, stay pretty active on there, especially my stories. Every time I'm out in the woods, I'll be used, you'll see me BSing about something. Yeah, I've really enjoyed following along, and like I said, that's where I found out about you at first, and uh, the older I get, the more I've been trying to surround myself with, you know, positive people that are getting after it, yep. and uh, saw, yep. saw that in you and your story, so I've been enjoying that, and I'd like to wish you good luck this fall. Yep, good luck to you also. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks again, and uh, I'll be following along, and if you knock down a, a good one or two, we'll try to catch up after the season. How's that sound? Awesome, man. I look forward to it. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks again. Take care. You too.